Welcome this morning at Kingscliff. Um, it's an honor again to open the Word of God with you, but before we do so, I'd like to invite you to pray with me. Gracious Father, we continue this morning to talk about the kingdom of heaven and human relations. It is not an easy topic to talk about, but my prayer this morning is that your word and your word alone will speak. Will you remove the man that stands in between so that your spirit alone will be heard? Make it quiet within us, Lord, so that we can hear as you touch our hearts. May your name be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week we spoke about Matthew chapter 18 and we came to the conclusion that there is a responsibility that each one of us have and especially the church has in order to rectify when there is wrong happening, especially in our interrelationship with each other. But in order to do that, we need first to come to the point where we realize at what tremendous cost we have been forgiven ourselves. It is within that frame frame set and in that mindset that we actually need to confront, restoratively confront, a erring brother and sister, not to destroy, but to win them back for the kingdom of God. What it would require is personal conversion first. That is where we had been last week. This week we turn the page to Matthew chapter 19 and we deal with a chapter which the King James Version refers to as the putting away. And I guess that In the church, it is far easier to put away this topic, glance over it, move on, because it deals with such intimate and most difficult situations. I realized this morning that the potential is great for me to be misunderstood. Not everyone will agree with what I'm going to share this morning. And therefore, my friends, I've decided that I would rather want to err on the side of Scripture and go through Scripture verse by verse and allow Scripture to speak instead of myself. And if I err, may it be that I err on the side of being too literal in terms of the Word of God. We do not have the time to go through the entire chapter. Yes, the chapter deals with areas where it was common in biblical day that women and children meant nothing. And therefore, when mothers came to ask Jesus to bless their children, it was the disciples that tried to block them what they have not yet found and discovered was the compassion and the empathy in the heart of God, in the heart of Jesus Christ. And that is that He came for those that society saw as worthless. And when Jesus confronts the rich young ruler, we see that the rich young ruler has done all the outer good stuff that Christians should do, but he neglected in one thing. He neglected to bless others with what God had blessed him with. You see, my friend, 
we measure God's love for us by looking at the road that he traveled to Golgotha and laid down his life there for us. And as we observe the cross and Jesus hanging from that cross, we confess and we say that this is how much God loves me. But God looks at the road that we are willing to travel. The road that we are willing to travel in our own life to bless others that can give nothing back in return to determine how much we love Him. Think about that. Those are the areas that I'm not going to bring in to this sermon this morning. The part that I'm going to bring in with is the much more difficult one. And I'd like to, to go to our first text, and I'm going to move for a minute away because I'm going to end off at the end with Malachi. I'm going to start off with Malachi, and I'm going to end off with Malachi. Malachi chapter 2 to start off our, our sermon. I want to say to our young people that while we're going to talk about marriage and divorce, and you might say, well, I'm not married, so I, I, I can chill out. This message is not for me. Actually, this message is for you. Because this message is not to destroy, is not to scar, is not to harm, is not to shoot anyone but it is rather a message of protection, of saving. And right at the end, I would in particularly want to talk to our young people that have not yet committed into marriage and just give you a few pointers there. So in our Bibles, let's turn to Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, which starts off by saying, for the Lord God of Israel says that he does what? The old King James translation says, hateth putting away, hateth divorce. For one covereth violence with his garment, says the Lord of hosts. I'm reading out of the King James translation. Therefore take heed to your spirit that you deal not treacherously. The word treacherously is the word that is, should actually say covertly. You act on the one side as if everything is going well, but underneath you're conniving, you have a process in place to destroy As I've already said, that the purpose of this sermon is preventative, not throwing stones at people. And I know, my friends, that some of the most wonderful Christians are people that have already experienced the scarring of divorce, has gone through the pain, but has also gone through the process of reconciliation with the people that were hurt in the process and connected with God. And I would like to say to them this morning, I am thankful that you are in this church, that you are part of this church family, and I would like to say to you that I hope that at the end of this message that you will be the greatest supporters of this message because you know what it is to go through the pain of divorce. With this said, I need to be open and honest with you today that we are living today in a society of throwaway society where, where everything is dispendable, so also is marriage. Let's look at the statistics of marriage resulting in divorce. In the 1920s, one out of every seven marriages ended up in divorce. 1940. One in six marriages ended in divorce. 1960, one in four. 72, one in three. 1977, one in every two marriages ended in divorce. 
today worldwide, my dear friends, the divorce rate outnumbers the rate of marriage. The mindset that we have today is that if it doesn't work out, why not bail out? Today's culture says, just live together. We even make reality TV out of marriage and the dispensability of marriage. It becomes so complacent that today it is just accepted as one of the normal things that happen. As complacent that cohabitation is, I just wonder why people even go to the effort of getting married. Maybe it is because it is so easy to undo that marriage. In Malachi 2 verse 16, the Bible says that God hates divorce. Let me make a very clear clarification here this morning. When we listen to those words, it is very easy for us to hear the words that God hates the divorced individual. My friend, that is not what Scripture says. What Scripture is saying is that God hates divorce, not the divorcee. As what God hates alcohol, but loves the alcoholic. As what God hates sin, but loves the sinner. God is no killjoy, but when God uses the word that he hates something, it is because he knows the heartache and the pain that that event will bring in individuals' lives. He knows the turmoil that it brings in our life, and he would love to protect us and save us from the injury that follows. Matthew chapter 19 looks at three things, and we're going to focus on those three things this morning. We're going to look at the original pattern that God had for marriage. Secondly, we're going to go and look at the ongoing problem that sin has brought into our world. And thirdly, we're going to look at the only permit that God gives for putting away. And we're going to take it verse by verse and allow God's Word to speak. In verse 3 to 6 of Matthew chapter 19, the Lord narrows it down to three things in terms of the origin of the pattern. He speaks about how couples are made, how couples are married, and how couples are merged. So let's take them one at a time and we, we look at what the Word of God says. So firstly, how couples are made. Divorce was controversial right from biblical day. So, the Pharisees wanting to trap Jesus had always sent individuals to the outer skirts of the crowd that followed Jesus. They were there with a purpose to look and to see and to catch Jesus saying the wrong thing. Secondly, they were there to ask the questions to trap him with. And this is what we find here in this chapter. You see, there was two very prominent rabbis in Jesus' day that spoke out and had two opposing theories about divorce. The one man was Rabbi Shammai. He was a conservative, and he said with his his team of followers, believed that there was no other way except one reason by which you could get divorced. And that was if you were had infidelity in your marriage. The second rabbi was Hallel, Rabbi Hallel. He was a liberal, and they believed, and his followers believed, that you could divorce for any reason. And therefore, as we opened our Bibles to Matthew 19, 
And there, verse 3, we read the following. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to to divorce his wife for just any reason? What is the question? The question in reality, my dear friend, is Jesus, which one of these two rabbis do you follow? Which speaks the truth? Is it Rabbi Shammai or is it Rabbi Hallel? You'd expect Jesus in his response to immediately go back to Deuteronomy and respond by sharing with them what Moses had said on this topic. It is surprising to notice that Jesus does not go to to Deuteronomy, but he goes right back beyond to Genesis. And in verse 4 he says, And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? How did he make them? What was the original design, the original pattern in which God designed marriage? He made them male and female, Adam and Eve. Do you realize that this verse, verse 4, puts to rest the whole political argument that is currently happening on same-sex marriage in Australia if only the authority of the Word of God was to be accepted? Men and women, my friends, are different. Don't know if you've noticed that lately. Women look differently physically than females, and I'm so grateful for that. Furthermore, women and men are different in terms of emotions. They're also different biologically. And one of the keys of marital success is found in learning, gentlemen, to learn how to embrace and how to appreciate the differences between husband and wife. The second point that we're looking here at is how couples are married. Matthew 19, verse 5, we read the following. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What does this text really say? It refers here to leaving and cleaving. Let's first focus on leaving. It is very important, and in Jesus' day it was a very public affair when people got married. The whole community were involved with the wife leaving her family to move over to her husband and his clan. The important part now was for the husband also to leave. The Bible is very clear that we should care for and love and respect our parents, right? Till death. Am I correct? Yes, that's what the Bible says. But the Bible is also clear, my dear friend, that when a husband puts his mother above his own wife, that he is breaking the original pattern that God had designed for marriage. It is also vital to notice that marital crisis happens when a wife respects her father more than what she respects her husband. The apron strings need to be detached, needs to be loosened. The two of them needs to be bound together. It is not just a command for young people that are getting married, but it's in actual fact also a command for parents that gives their children into marriage. Experiencing 
this crisis in my relationship with my own parents, my wife and I made a very clear decision in our marriage in relation to our children. That when my children eventually came to the point where we gave them over to someone else in holy matrimony, we took it as our responsibility to safeguard their marriage by helping them to come to the point where they would also leave us. So if ever my son would decide to want to come and talk to us about something, it is our responsibility as parents to ask him this question, have you already discussed this issue with your wife? If the answer is no, then it is our responsibility as parents to say to him, in that regard, we cannot talk to you about this right now. You first need to go back to your spouse and talk to her. And no matter what her decision would be, we would accept that outcome because it is our responsibility as parents to help our children to disconnect and to connect to their spouse. Friends, why do I spend so much time on this topic? Because I have seen it over and over again of marital crisis happening because not only can the young people detach, but also the parents cannot make that separation. Then there's the cleaving. The word in the original text really means to be glued together. Yes, gentlemen, look at her. You've been married maybe for 40 years, 50 years. You are stuck together. That's what the word means, to, to cleave together. Gentlemen, can you remember the day that you, you asked her to marry and all the dreams as you were building up to, to the wedding day and honeymoon was there and all that you could envisage is when you come home at, at night after a busy day at work, she would be waiting for you ready. Dr. David, I won't uh, use all your, uh, your explanations in the kid's story, but yes, you envisage her in, in this wonderful romantic clothing. Now many years later, as you come home from work, what do you find? A wife with curlers in the hair, a gunk on her face. There's pumpkin soup all over her cotton pajamas. There's vomit down her back. But dear friends, you know what? You're stuck. You are stuck. There's no way out. You have to cleave together. That is the way that God has made us. And I want you to look at, at these words that I'm putting on the screen. It is not your love that sustains your commitment. It is your commitment that will sustain your love. You see, my friends, if we wait for that romantic, loving feeling to be there, it will never come because that feeling is affected too much by environmental things around you. If you've had a bad week, if you've eaten too much sugar, if you've had crisis at, at work, those feelings are not stable. But it is about a decision that I make to be committed. Yes, Happy to talk about murder, but divorce, never. Sorry, my notes is flying off. Yes, my friends, this is the way that God has made us. He's made us different. Celebrated, appreciated. He further has made us to leave 
and to cleave. But thirdly, we'd like to look at our, how couples are merged together. And here I turn to verse 6 of Matthew 19. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. What is the mass of heaven? The mass that God used is one plus one is equal to one. It doesn't, it doesn't work like that on planet earth, but this is God's math in terms of marriage. This is the miracle that he wants to work in each one of our lives. We are one physically, we are one emotionally. In other words, when the one hurts, the other one hurts as well. And he wants us to be one spiritually. Maybe you say this morning, yes, but you don't understand, David. She's so different to me. Celebrate that, my friend. That is exactly what drew the two of you together in the first place. That is the reason why you got married, because of that difference. It is after marriage that that being different starts to irritate us. I have to confess this morning, in the absence of my wife, that she is completely different to me. She's completely differently in her build physically to me. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. We are complementing each other by way of physical difference. But she's also different emotionally. She's far more emotional than what I am. And therefore, she has a sensitivity and has an edge on looking at things from a different angle. She's my helpmate. She's the one that helps to complete me, make me whole, because only part of me is me. The other half is when she comes and she rounds me off. She's like a powerful supplement for my malnourished life. Oh, friends, the one thing that we need to learn, according to Matthew 19, is that God had made us, intentionally made us, to be different. And I hope that you do not wait until you're at the age of 80 that you discover that there's in actual fact a blessing in it. You cannot change them. You should not try to change them. There's only one person that you can change, and that is yourself. My first congregation, my first district that I pastored in ministry, there was an elderly couple deep in their 80s. The wife was a baptized member of the church. Her husband would dutifully come every Sabbath morning, drop her off at church, then go and sit in his car for hours waiting for his wife to finish with Sabbath school and service. Sometimes, at the odd occasion, he would come in if we had church lunch. Or when there was a special Sabbath, he might sometimes come in to just enjoy in that special occasion. I would go and visit him. He was a lovely old man. And one day, his wife said to me, I, Pastor, I'm praying that God will change him. But I'm disappointed in God because over all these years that we've been married, He has never answered my prayer. I dearly, I, I dearly love this old lady as I'm starting to love you as a congregation. And I looked at her. I was just, a, uh, just out of college, just out of military service. 
I looked at her and I said to her, my dear auntie, is it possible that you are maybe praying the wrong prayer? She said, what? What do you mean? Shouldn't I pray for my husband? I said, sure. But shouldn't you rather pray that God will change you? She didn't say it to me then. I pastored that district for six years, moved on, was invited back as a guest speaker for the celebration of the hundredth year of that church's existence. And at that time, this old gentleman was in the audience. And I went up to his wife and said to her, how do you get him to come? She said to me, Pastor, he's a member of the congregation. I said, how did that happen? She said, I was very offended with you. She was a gracious old lady who would never have shown it. I never knew it. She said, I was very offended by your words to change my prayer and ask God to change me. But she said, I went home and I started to think about this. And the Holy Spirit started to impress me. And I started to pray that God will transform me. And she said, within months after you left, my husband, one Sabbath morning, as I got up to get ready for church, got up and he started to take out his suit. And she said, I looked at him and said, Who's, who died? Whose funeral are you attending today? That's the only time that he puts on a suit? He said, no one. So uh, where are you going with your suit? He said, I'm going to church. She said, Pastor, the moment I took my eyes away from my husband and started to pray that God change me, the transformation happened. And I thank God that you challenged me to pray for my change. Now, my friends, this text also says, let no man put asunder. Let no man put away. That is God's statement concerning the seriousness and the sacredness of marriage. You see, you and I will never understand the seriousness of divorce until we understand the seriousness of marriage in the eyes of God. It is not the judge. It is not the preacher. It is not you and I that make two into one. It is God that performs that miracle and you and I do not have the authority to undo that which God has bound. This is God's pattern for us and God knows best how we should function. Let's go to number two, the second point in our message namely the ongoing problem that continues to exist. After God gives us the ideal, He then deals with the reality of how we live today and the challenges that we face. We, we read in Matthew 19, 7 to 8, He says, They said to Him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? Please note the word there, why did Moses command? That word in the original text actually reads, why did Moses instruct us? Verse 8 says, he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. God already revealed his preference in verse 6. That God's intention is for us, for no one to put asunder. Even in the instances where the exception clause come into effect, God still would prefer that we would rather make use of the instruction given to us in Matthew chapter 18. 
that we go to the person that is erring against us, speak to them one-on-one. If they do not listen, then bring witnesses along. And if they still do not listen, bring them before the congregation. And when they still do not listen, to do what? Deal with them as tax collectors and heathens. And what is our responsibility to tax collectors and heathens? To win them for the kingdom of God. So God's ideal, although the exception clause is there, is for us to go and plead, search for answers, get the help in that is needed to bring about a restorative salvation in that relationship. Oh, my friends, I want to say to you that there is never something more revealing of your character than to be married. Do you agree with me? As I counsel with couples, I often see the one couple turning their face towards their spouse and they would say to me, Pastor, he just bring the worst out in me. He makes me so angry. No one can make you do something that you do not already have buried in your own heart. You cannot squeeze anything out of a dry napkin. You see, the Word of God is asking us to make a personal investigation into our own life and our own commitment in our relationship towards God. I never knew how selfish I was. I never knew how self-centered I was. I never knew what a jerk I was until I got married. You see, God gave us our original pattern God spoke in Matthew 19 about the ongoing problem. And now thirdly, let's for a brief few minutes look at the only permit that God gives. Matthew 19 verse 9. Sorry, I didn't put the second part up. Uh, Matthew 19 verse 9, there it is. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced, commits adultery. There is an exception here, dear friends. And you have to be a a theological genius acrobat to try and undo the very plain instruction that the Word of God gives here. The exception to the rule is this, for adultery or for fornication. Nowhere does Scripture say, and not everyone will agree with me here, so I'm just pre-warning you, nowhere does Scripture say, unless you do not get along anymore. Nowhere does Scripture say if you do not love each other anymore that you can divorce or unless they hurt your feelings or abuse you mentally and even physically. Oh, wait a minute. Some of these things indeed are grounds for physical separation for a while in order to bring into play the principles that are given to us in Matthew chapter 18. But that only temporarily in order to restoratively confront and bring healing back into the relationship. The passage is very clear. The marriage contract was completed and sealed with a physical consummation on the marital bed. 
and it can be broken with exactly that same act outside of the marital bed with someone else. The way that it is sealed is the only way that it can be broken. But in Jesus' eyes, in God's original plan and pattern, it can only be after everything has been done. Everything has been done to try and restore and save that relationship. And after everything has been done and it fails, only then the exception clause can be used. It is due to the hardness of your hearts. It is due to the unwillingness to reconcile, to forgive that Moses had given that exception clause. It's very interesting to note how the disciples respond in verse 10. His disciples said to him, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. On, on that point, Jesus then speaks about celibacy. In other words, my friends, if you're unwilling to stick it out, if you're unwilling to forgive to the point where you can be cheated on and still forgive, realizing to what point God has forgiven you, if you're unwilling for that, then Jesus says, it's better to stay celibate. In this text, he does not give instruction for any religious leaders to stay celibate. It has to do with the inability to forgive in marriage. Back to Malachi 2 for a brief instruction. Where's all our young people? Over there. No, they scattered. Quickly, a few pointers for our young people, and then we're going to close. Malachi 2 verse 11 says, Judah has dealt treacherously. What is that word, treacherously? Covertly, underhandedly. And an abomination has been committed in Israel and in J Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. What does this mean? What does it mean that he has married the daughter of a foreign god? Oh, my young people, He's actually referring to this abomination as marrying an unbeliever, a believer connecting themselves with an unbeliever. To be unequally yoked, the Bible doesn't give us permission to do that. He says in 2 Corinthians 6.14, he says the following, he says, be not unequally yoked together with an unbeliever. Now I know, young ladies, that it doesn't help me saying this. It doesn't help us reading this scripture because your heart often goes beyond what the Word of God says, not only young ladies, but also young men. And in my work, I often meet up with young people that says to me, Pastor, in my case, it would be different. The truth is, it is hardly ever different. It is rather the exception to the rule if you marry a person that is an unbeliever that you will stay an active member of the family of God. Very, very rare. But if you do take that step by marrying an unbeliever, I want to share with you just briefly, very briefly, three points. And that is that you can expect a spiritual disagreement in your life. Amos 3 verse 3 says, 
Can two walk together except they agree? Your paths will go into different ways. If you want to hold on to your faith, if you want to hold on to your marriage, you will be compelled to make compromises. And as you make those compromises to try to save your marriage, what is going to happen, my dear young person, is that they are going to use your compromising against you when you want to do the right thing later in life. Believe me, I've seen it too often. I've worked with people too often in that regard. The second point is spiritual decay. Only in rare instances will you be able to live for God. It's such a struggle. There's that constant drain in your marriage. Not only in your marriage, but also you see the potential of your children not accepting Jesus Christ. And although you might take them to Sabbath school initially, as they grow older, they might turn away from the faith. Yes, there's an exception to the rule, but that is extremely rare. The third point that I would like to give you is that there will be spiritual division. Statistics prove that if you marry a person that is not in your own faith, that you have a three times greater potential of going through, the, through divorce as when you marry someone in your own faith. Closing. Singles, to you I would like to say this morning that the travesty of unequally yoked Stay away from it. Ask God to lead you to a person of significance in your life. As, as Chuck Swindle, radio pastor, says to a young person, he says, instead of marrying outside of your faith, rather go down to the op shop and buy a dress or a pants of the opposite sex Hang them on the side of your bed, and every night you pray, Lord, fill this dress with a woman, or Lord, fill this pants with a man. Bring it to God in prayer. God will answer your prayer. The second point is for those of us that are married. Avoid the treachery of an unkept vow. And thirdly, I don't care if this is your first marriage or your fifth marriage. What I want to plead with you is to honor that vow that you've made to the honor and the glory of God because he will bless. The story is told of a woman, a lady that um, just was fed up with her husband and she wanted to divorce him. So she went to see a a, a divorce lawyer, and she said to him, I want to take everything that he has. I want to hurt him so badly that not even taking all the money is good enough. Do you have you got any advice for me? The, the, the solicitor said for her, yes, I do. She said, what is it? He said, I'm going to recommend to you that you go home, and for three months you try to check out and identify all the good stuff that he does and compliment him to the point where he will madly in love fall in, in love with you again. And when he's madly in love with you, at that point, you pull out the divorce papers and you file for divorce. So come and see me after three months. She went home. And that's exactly what she did. She started to notice everything that he was doing that was correct, and he started to compliment him and praise him and thank him for that. Three months later, with her husband now madly in love with her, she went back to the solicitor. And he said, right, I've, got, I've drawn up the divorce papers. Just sign on this dotted line. She said, I've come to ask you to tear up those papers because I never realized what a wonderful husband I have. My dear friends, the best gift that this church
can give its kids is a church that protects its marriages. But what this church also needs is to care for those whose marriages have broken up, to bring healing, to bring restoration, and to allow God's grace to restore individuals back to his honor and his glory. I want to be a pastor of a church that fights to protect marriages. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, O Lord, the devil is out to destroy marriages because if he succeeds, he destroys the fiber of the community of faith. Not only does he destroy the family, the kids who are often the victims in the story, but he also erodes away the spirituality of a church. May Kingscliff Church, a church that cares for each other, that do not point the finger, but rather grab hold of the car keys and drive to the family where there's a crisis and confronting them in caring love, supporting, journeying with them, saying, my brother, my sister, I care too much about you to just to see you destroy your life. May we become the hands, the feet, the eyes, the voice of a God that cares. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Hey, greetings from beautiful and sunny Kingscliff, Australia. I want to take just a moment of your time, first of all, to thank you for tuning in, watching the program. I trust it was a blessing to you and your soul drawing you closer to God and His will for your life. I also want to let you know that we are planning a significant expansion of our existing media ministry here at the Kingscliff Church. To find out more about this expansion and how you can get involved, go to bringitkingscliff.com. You can go either to the homepage or to the Our Gifts page to find out how you can come alongside us and support, not just with your viewership, but also financially and with your prayers. Hey, thanks again so much for watching, and take care.